who runs the world? Like who have made it to the top in society? Who runs it? Most executives of billion dollar companies are Ivy League educated or they're Silicon Valley nerds, you know? The famous are the particularly brilliant, gorgeous, rich, and talented. Beyonce sings, who runs the world? Girls. Blessed are the assertive, strong, cutthroat, cheaters, famous, powerful, and workaholics, for they shall inherit the earth, is the way the world seems to work, right? Yet Jesus said, in the, in the text we're looking at today, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does that mean, and how does that work? And I think the really important question for us is, who will we believe on this? Because Jesus gives us a radically different perspective of the blessed life. We've been seeing that as we've opened up our Bibles to the Beatitudes the last couple of weeks. He gives us this radically different perspective of the blessed life found in the Beatitudes. And at first glance, they seem backwards. They all seem backwards. But as we've begun to look more closely at them, we begin to see how much more compelling and satisfying they are and how much more settled and secure we can be by embracing Jesus' vision of the good life. So here's where we're going to go. We're going to look at defining meekness, cultivating meekness, and rewarding meekness. So first, defining meekness. I asked my wife, earlier this week, like what, what she would see as the popular level definition of meekness. And she said, it's probably someone who's like, I don't know, what do you want to do? You know? And I think she's right. We equate, on a popular level, we define meekness as weakness, as a doormat or a timid soul. Like if I were talking to any of, of, of you guys watching this right now and I was talking with you and described you as meek, I don't think you'd be particularly thrilled about it. But you are kind of meek. But. <laughs> and, and that's not actually what the Bible means about meekness at all. So that's a good thing. I hope you are meek. The Bible describes two people as meek. Moses and Jesus. If you look at in Numbers chapter 12, it says that Moses was more meek than anyone else on the planet at that time. And it tells us that right in the middle of a scenario where, where Moses is being bitterly opposed and criticized by some people and is about to be vindicated by God. And it inserts that Moses was the most meek person in the world. And, and the reason I think we're told that Moses was meek right at that spot was because he was committing his cause at that moment to God and not defending himself. He doesn't freak out about their critical words. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't say a word. He entrusts himself to God and God vindicates him. Now, before going to the cross, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a proud man. He was a Roman official of significance by all accounts heir to the earth at that time. It was the Roman world. Jesus, on the other hand, had the appearance of weakness, a poor Jewish man under Roman authority and under arrest. Yet, 
if you know the story, you know that Jesus was actually the free man. Jesus, the meek man, the prisoner, was in control and would inherit the heavens and the earth. Pilate, on the other hand, was a prisoner of his own pride with no inheritance at all. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, this beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, is a quotation from Psalm 37, verse 11. But in the entire psalm, it actually says five variations of the same earth-inheriting promise. And in each instance, the promise of inheriting the land is in the context of being oppressed and hurt by other people. So ultimately, Psalm 37 is saying to oppressed people, your Godward reliance and humility will lead you to inherit the earth. I think another way to help us define meekness is to look at the first two Beatitudes. This is the third one. Let's look at the first two. Because to be poor in spirit has to do with a right assessment of myself. I'm spiritually bankrupt and I'm completely dependent on God for grace. And then to mourn means a right and godly grief over my sin. Now, meekness has to do with building upon that right and proper assessment of myself and mourning that reality, but now meekness has to do with my relationship with God and others. So in this way, I think it's actually more difficult than the others because it involves someone else coming along and pointing out stuff in me. And that can be challenging, right? That when my wife gives me feedback about a negative attitude or action she sees in me, I usually, I usually have one of, of two things going, going through my mind. One of the things that might be going through my mind is an excuse. Well, the reason why I did that or I, I think that is because of this, having an excuse ready to go, or the other thing that might be going through my mind as she's giving me feedback is, well, since you brought it up, I've got a few things to address about you, right? <laughs> How, how do you respond when someone points out a fault, an area of sin in your life, or challenges you? What do you do? Martin Lloyd-Jones said of meekness, it is to allow other people to put the searchlight upon me instead of my doing it myself. Now, the first two Beatitudes are, are about me putting the searchlight on myself. The third Beatitude is about allowing others to put the searchlight on me. Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, the man who is truly meek, the person who is truly meek is the man who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Kent Hughes builds upon that and says, the test as to whether we are truly meek is not whether we can say we are poor sinners, but rather what we do when someone else calls us vile sinners. John Piper put it this way, meekness is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. See, that's not weakness. That's strength. If arrows are being shot at you, the, the, the reactionary thing is to shoot arrows back. It takes a, a greater strength to absorb it. 1 Peter 2.23 says of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's the more difficult thing, and it's an unnatural thing. 
and that's true meekness. Imagine what meekness embodied and applied would look like in our lives. It would radically change the dynamic of interpersonal conflict, right? We'd be much quicker to listen and receive feedback in our marriages, which I'm learning to do. Parenting would be filled with more grace. And if whenever we get slighted or misrepresented, it doesn't crush us. Ultimately, our lives would more starkly represent Jesus if we would take on the attribute of meekness we observe in Jesus. So that leads me to the second point. How can we cultivate meekness? I want to share three ways that we can be cultivating meekness in our lives. The first is simply to understand that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. What we must understand is that meekness isn't anyone's default posture, right? That's that kind of wrong view, popular level view of meekness. Oh, that person's sort of weak and recoiled and they're meek. No, no one is naturally meek as the Bible describes it. We're not talking about weak, timid doormats. We're talking about the gentle, humble meekness that only comes through encountering Jesus. It goes against our nature and therefore requires supernatural help and that help is available in Jesus. So meekness is the work of the Holy Spirit and therefore comes by grace and grace alone. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, know this. His word to you today is he's already started to help you and he will continue to help you in becoming a meek person. Second, the second way to possess uh, or sorry, to uh, cultivate meekness is to possess a true view of self and a greater view of God. A true view of self and a greater view of God. I want to encourage you to take up a, a tradition that comes from church history, really common among church uh, Christians in the early church. And it was this practice this rhythm of life every morning and evening. In the evening before bed, reflect on your sins and confess them to God. And in the morning, rise to meet him by reading your Bible. Is that your practice? Is that your rhythm? Historically, that has been a massive part of the Christian walk of discipleship. See, if we fail to take an accurate daily look at ourselves, right? At the end of the day, looking back, recognizing, confessing sin to God. If we fail to do that, we grow bigger in our own eyes. We think more of ourselves than we should. That's where we go if we do not assess, at the end of the day, our own failings in need of grace. In the same way, in the morning, when we rise to meet him, if, if, if we fail to do that, if we fail to look at God's character and glory in Scripture, we grow bigger in our own eyes because we do not see God as he is. We, we shrink him down to something we can fathom with our own minds and we place ourselves as bigger than we ought in them. Now, the word glory is this massive word and could be defined um, for a long time, but really it's glimpses of the holiness of God. But, but a really simple definition of glory is weight, like the weightiness of God. And, and so to become meek, we actually have to look up at the glory of God, see the weightiness, the holiness of God. Pride for us is an attempt to assign the weight to ourselves. 
But meekness recognizes the need for someone outside of us to give us that weight. So the Apostle Paul puts it perfectly in Colossians 1 when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the glory outside of us that comes to live in us, that on the cross Jesus secured his glory for us. I I heard it put this way, in so doing he was pinning his medals to our chests. I love that. See, so many Christians these days push back at the discipline of daily Bible reading and daily repentance. But if that's you, it's, all, it's to your own peril. These foundational daily disciplines of discipleship unravel our default setting of being large in our own eyes and gives Jesus the rightful place as big in our lives. The third way we can cultivate meekness is to learn it from Jesus. Jesus promises that if we yoke ourselves to him, we'll learn meekness. That language comes out of Matthew 11 where Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Now it's interesting, it's the exact same word used in Matthew 5.5 for meek. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay, so here's, here's the deal with the whole yoke thing, okay? Pre-tractor era, a young ox was yoked to an older, experienced ox, kind of tethered together, side by side, so the younger one could be trained. Now, by bearing the same yoke, the untrained ox learned the proper pace and how to follow its master. We learn by being yoked to Jesus. That's how we grow in meekness. It's at least one of the ways. So what's going on here is that that Jesus, as we see in the scriptures, is the ultimate picture of meekness. The eternal son of God left heaven, came to earth to serve, to give and sacrifice for the eternal good of others. It's exhausting and a heavy burden to constantly attempt to secure our own value and our own self-worth. Jesus invites us to take up his yoke and to stop dragging ours around. So Jesus, our model of meekness, tells us there's no burden to carry and there's nothing to prove. Just come and rest. The invitation of Jesus is to stop trying to prove ourselves by gaining approval and applause, by standing on my truth, but to find our worth and value and rest in him, the truth. I mean, that's incredible news in an individualistic culture. That's incredible news for for those of us constantly trying to prove ourselves, constantly worrying about what others think and say about us, being sensitive about how we're perceived. Man, that's exhausting. It's got to be one of the great curses in life as a result of the fall, this never-ceasing, exhausting, striving for significance by asserting ourselves and clamoring for the top. I really think that we can all see that there are cracks in the popular level view of the blessed life. 
Who are the blessed, the happy, the idolized? I started to talk about it at the beginning of my sermon. A lot of people would say the famous, right? They're living the dream. They're ruling the world. In 1976, a survey asked people to list their life goals. Fame ranked 15th of 16 goals. So something really fascinating has been going on lately in our culture because a 2007 study of millennials, that's those born between 1980 and 1994, this study found that 51% of millennials said being famous was one of their top personal goals. And then just recently, a study was conducted on Gen Z, Gen Z, those born between 1995 and 2015, and this recent study revealed that 65% of Gen Zers would like to be famous. Is being famous the blessed life? Is it the way to making it in the world? Cynthia Heimel wrote in an article, I pity celebrities. You see, and she names three uh, extremely famous celebrities, you see these three wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. In other words, they arrived at their idea of the blessed life and when they got there, they collectively looked around and said, is this it? Okay, so, so maybe it's not fame. Maybe that's too complicated. Maybe then it's just wealth. Maybe wealth, riches is the key to the blessed life and making it in the world. It's estimated that at the height of his wealth, John Rockefeller in the, mid -er, uh, in the early 20th century had a net worth of about 1% to 2% of the entire U.S. economy. If you go to New York today, right in the middle of it is Rockefeller Center named after him. I mean, that's some expensive real estate, right? And inside of it are the NBC studios, their news. And so they're pumping out culture, really, to America and to the world in his name. That seems like power, right? That seems like ruling the world. Well, he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. I think that's our default mode, all of us, our fallen sinful condition, ego and pride and worldliness always need a little bit more, a little bit more wealth, a few more accolades, a little more acceptance, a bit more applause, more attention, always needing to be thought well of in the eyes of those in positions we're trying to reach. There's a fascinating display going on in the world right now. The wealthy and the famous, the world superpowers are at the mercy of a virus that's invisible to the eye. It's able to bring the world to its knees like that. I mean, that's how precarious the blessed life is when self-fulfillment, self-actualization is the goal.
is the objective. It's only the meek Christian, it's only the meek Christian that can be genuinely content. Jesus, our model of meekness, tells us there's no burden to carry and nothing to prove. Just come and rest. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, speaks of revolutionizing the way all of us approach life. Embrace Jesus, and he will renovate your heart and your life, meekness included. That's how Jim Elliot. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s who was speared to death by a tribe in Ecuador he was trying to reach with the gospel. See, it's how Jim Elliott could say he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, Jim Elliott was done with chasing and striving and living for the applause of others. He found rest and security in Jesus, which made him so willing and able to give his life away. Rather than turning inward and trying to attain the good life for himself, he was able to look Godward and pour his life out for others. C.S. Lewis wrote, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Which leads me to this last part, rewarding meekness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's a contradiction to the world. It's a paradox, but I think we can begin to see how that's actually the case in two ways. So first, a meek person inherits the earth now because they're satisfied. They're already content. When Jesus invites us to come and rest with no burden to carry and nothing to prove, it frees us now because we're freed from the tyranny of just a little bit more. No one else, nobody else is free like that. We share in the perspective of the Apostle Paul that in Christ, we're already possessing everything. The humble are flourishing despite appearances in the society and the world because they are true inheritors of the world. So the now aspect of the reward Jesus promises to the meek is contentment, trust, and rest in God that really does make us happy and blessed now. The second part is this, a meek, person's in, a meek person inherits the earth in the future because one day they will come into the fullness of his inheritance where they will reign with Christ. That is where this beatitude will literally be fulfilled. And the way of meekness that leads to inheritance is I think most fully on display in Philippians chapter two where it tells us, it instructs us, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his meekness, because he laid his life down, because he was happy in God, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think Jesus intends for the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth to give us the strength. This is what God intends, I think 
the meek shall inherit the earth, it can give us the strength to endure in meekness when the natural inclination would be to be fearful, lash out in anger, try to defend ourselves, or retaliate. There really are two, two options or two paths in our lives. Deny self and make much of Jesus or deny Jesus and make much of self. One, only one, unleashes the good life now and forever. And it's not the way that seems natural to us. It's the way of Jesus that ushers in the kingdom. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, I, I thank you so much for not only sharing the good life, the roadmap to the good life with us, but, but, but displaying it in your coming to save, your living and your dying, and your meeting us and, and enabling it, us to be meek. Jesus, I, I, I ask that you would help us see the world through meek eyes. That you have begun to make us meek and that you would continue to do so. Oh, may we be satisfied in you. We love you, Jesus.